I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. We are so excited to have you here on episode 98 of our True Crime New England podcast. This also is the episode that is just before our two-year anniversary. Two years, Katie, we've been married. That's It's been <laughs> nuts. But seriously, guys, we are so pumped that it's been two years already. People like you make the time go by so fast, and we're so thankful. And in honor of our two years, we decided to hit you guys with a very, very famous and heavy hitter. We had to go big or go home. I mean, this case was in Vermont, mm-hmm. if you guys pay attention to the order that we pick states from. Even though it's half in Vermont, half in New Hampshire, it's Vermont. It's pretty much Vermont. We had to go big. Yeah. And listen, when we saw that our two-year anniversary episode was going to be in Vermont, we panicked because we have like four cases in Vermont and they're all very small. Mm-hmm. So we were worried, but this is a heavy hitter for sure. And you guys, I feel like we have gotten so many. Dozens. Instagram DMs, emails, website submissions. You guys have to do the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Mm -hmm. Please do the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Hey, there's this case in Vermont, New Hampshire. It's called the Connecticut River Valley Killer. So there has been so many of you guys that have suggested this to us. Mm -hmm. You know who you are. Right. If we named you all, that would be the whole episode. Honestly. We know who you are. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. And it is such an interesting case to go through because as most of you know it's unsolved still Mm -hmm. and there have been a lot of suspects there have been a lot of potential other victims of this killer as well and of course that comes with any serial killer case who is connected who isn't are we missing some there's just so many possibilities and this case is no exception for sure it's a big boy (laughs) it's a big boy tune in but we also ask you guys to tune in again in two days for our little special something we have for you guys that will come out on the day of our anniversary yes if you guys are listeners who have gone through all of our episodes or maybe you just so happen to have listened to this one last year for our one year anniversary we released a short like half hour episode celebrating the past year of true crime new england and Perhaps in two days that may be happening again, but two years of True Crime New England. Crazy. We're very excited. We loved giving you guys kind of an idea of the statistics around the podcast, what we were up to, what we had done. So we're going to bring that back to you guys in two days. Yes. And we also will be doing a little special announcement for what you can look forward to with the podcast in the next year. Yeah. So. We highly recommend tuning in to hear about that announcement. Look at our social media as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, we're just, we're so fucking excited. Oh, we're pumped. This is the best time of the year. Like Christmas for us. It's so good. And I'm so ready. And I think you people who are loyal listeners will be so excited. And we are just, we are so thankful. It is going to be so great. So definitely tune into that episode. But For now, instead of having an exciting, fun time, we're going to bring you right back down in true true crime New England fashion and 
make it really sad. We're going to take away our happy attitudes and just we're sad now. Because this case, again, it's brutal. Unsolved and brutal. And without further ado, today we will be covering the The Connecticut Connecticut River Valley Killer. All right, guys, just because it's been two years does not mean we're going to change anything. Let's go over our sources. Katie, tell me what you have for today's case. I've been waiting for this. Yeah? We're going to keep it the same. We're going to keep it old school. Sure. Wikipedia. Amazing. Followed by the Unresolved Mysteries Reddit thread. Okay. Unresolved Mysteries wiki. And a book called The Shadow of Death, The Hunt for a Serial Killer by Philip Ginsburg. Liz and I did a little book club for this case when we were picking this and we were like, we have to do a huge episode for our two-year anniversary. Right. Liz, you were like, oh, there has to be a book about this. Sure. And sure enough, we found this book. Highly recommend. They go very in-depth on the victims, which of course we love. Right. They go into other suspects, other victims. And the investigation. Absolutely. It is fantastic. And it's it was published in like 1993, so it is a fairly old source, but the information about the victims is still the same. Mm-hmm. So it's really good. Again, The Shadow of Death, The Hunt for a Serial Killer by Philip Ginsburg. Good book. I found it for $11 a pop on Thrift Books, so definitely check them out. I mean, Thrift Books is a great website uh, and app on its own, but Great price. We both got... Did you get a hardcover? Yeah. We both got hardcovers for 11 bucks. So just saying, at Barnes & Nobles, those go for like $30. What, like 35 yeah, yeah, easy. So it was good. Is that all your sources? It sure was. All right. Well, I had the book as well. And I, too, unsurprisingly, used Wikipedia. Thank God. I mean, if we didn't... We'd have to stop the podcast. We'd have to end it all. <laughs> like, truly. I also used Unsolved Mysteries Wiki. I used a Medium article by Lisa Marie Fuqua. I used a Reddit thread from Unsolved Murders. I used a thread from Web Sleuths. And I also used an article from the Keen Sentinel. All right, let's go over what the Connecticut River Valley is, because its name is kind of misleading. So the Connecticut River is the longest river in all of New England. Hell Yeah. And it flows for approximately 406 miles, and it goes through four states, as well as dipping into Quebec, Canada. We love our neighbors to the north. A lot of times people will say that New Hampshire is the armpit of Maine, and that Maine is the armpit of Canada. So we're all just one big armpit, if you really think of it. But anywho, (laughs) the Connecticut River runs south through New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Ironically, the series of killings that we're going to be talking about, including the suspects, who are, of course, suspected to be connected, all happened along the section of the river that flows through the borders of Vermont and New Hampshire. So, like I said, the title is a little misleading because while it is the Connecticut River, it's in Vermont and New Hampshire. But as I just said, it also goes through Connecticut. So it makes, you know, it checks out, but. The bodies of seven women were found in a roughly 10-year span within a 50-mile radius of the river, which was roughly near Route 91. So all in this kind of condensed area, which is just a part of the reason why they think it was one person who did this. So that's just kind of like a baseline. Understand what the Connecticut River Valley is. Pretty cool that it's the longest river in New England, you know, represent. But, you know, in this 
time frame, there was a lot of really sad happenings here. And it sounds like this was a good place to be a dumping ground. Yes. And as these bodies were being discovered, there were actually two that were found within just a thousand feet of each other. Yeah. They were in Kellyville, New Hampshire. They were both skeletal remains. The first was found in 1985 and the second year later. And both of them had been stabbed multiple times. Right. So authorities found those remains Mm -hmm. and they were able to kind of connect not only the two remains to one another, but those two remains to other stabbings that had occurred in the area. And so we were kind of able to go over the timeline. The investigators were able to connect all of these women to each other, which is kind of incredible. Yeah. But as more and more information was coming out, like, oh, another woman's body was found. She too had been stabbed. Mm -hmm. People in this area were locking their doors. Right. Which was a first. Right. You know, it's way up north. Everybody feels safe. It's very small town, New England, picturesque, like we always talk about. Of course. People didn't lock their doors. And so women were going home in groups. Women were locking their doors. Women were not leaving their houses. It was crazy. It was a very scary, scary time. Absolutely. And I mean, it's true, Katie. We say this about all these cases is that you don't think it's going to happen in your town. But once it does, the shock is just insurmountable. It's why would it happen here? There's no way. And then there are people, and you know, this is part of the reason why so many people will die in this situation is because of the denial. You know, like it's not happening here. I'm still going to go out. I'm still going to not lock my door. I'm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, in today's day and age, it's not really like that because true crime has become such a prominent thing. Mm -hmm. People have learned from that. Helicopter parents are much more common, which is whatever, you know, and people are locking their doors. Right. And nobody hitchhikes anymore. Precisely. That's a big part of it. Precisely. And, you know, hitchhiking famously across the country has led to the death of hundreds of people, mostly women. And it's just been a learning curve that is, it's so unfortunate that that's how people had to learn, you know, but this case in New England is no exception. Mm-hmm. Hitchhiking, sex work, very vulnerable populations also targeted here. Also a manner of convenience. Some of these women were abducted or last seen late at night. And back in these times, it was not as scary to walk alone as a woman. You know, you could just do that. I personally would never because it's scary. And that's just because of cases like this. Exactly. Yeah. It can be really unnerving. So, you know, while this case took place over 30 years ago, some almost 45, 50, the details are still prominent, Mm -hmm. I think. And we can all learn a little bit from how people, especially serial killers or just sick individuals, will take victims. It's always good to be cautious. So we're going to take you through the timeline of the murders, as well as potential suspects, theories, all that good stuff. So we're going to go in as much of an orderly fashion as we possibly can. (laughs) Yeah. The first victim was 27-year-old Catherine, otherwise called Kathy Milliken. On October 24th, 1978, Kathy had left work and she went to the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve in New London, New Hampshire. 
She was a little bit of a, a bird nerd. She was an <laughs> avid bird watcher, which I think is so cute. Honestly, it's so pure. What a little sweetie. Like, <laughs> she loved to watch birds. And actually, she had gotten a tip that this specific kind of duck mm. that can rarely be spotted would be at that preserve. Which, I mean, for a bird nerd is pretty exciting. She booked it. She was like, okay, everybody clocking out. Bye. Like, yeah. I have to go find this duck. Yeah. So she got to the preserve at about 530 and she walked in and it was a bunch of different trails. Um, it was a wetland. Mm-hmm. So there's little footbridges and, yeah. you know, beaten paths that Kinda you can walk feet. through. Yes. Yeah. A half hour after she arrived, a police officer drove by. He noticed two cars. Two cars. Kathy's body was found the next day, just several yards from where she was last seen. She had suffered over 20 stab wounds across her entire body. Yeah. Her skirt had also been pulled down. There wasn't specific evidence as to whether she was sexually assaulted, but her skirt had been pulled down and her clothing was bunched up kind of underneath her. Right. The police officer that had been patrolling the area the night before said he recalled one of the cars that he saw was a Volkswagen Rabbit, which was Kathy's. Oh, okay. Her keys, binoculars, and other belongings were found in various parts of the trail along with drag marks, indicating that the perpetrator caught her by surprise and then attacked her before dragging her body to where it was finally found. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, that it was found the next day. Yeah, because like we said in the beginning of this, a lot of these women were not found until much, much, much later when they had already been very decomposed. It took a very long time for a cause of death to be determined. Right. So she was found very quickly, but most of these other women were not. Yeah. And you also have to factor in how evidence was collected back then, what testing they were able to do back then at this time. So... Her being found right away is, I mean, is good in the mm-hmm. scale of things. Obviously, nothing about this is good, but it meant that her body wasn't so decomposed that they couldn't do anything, you know? Mary Elizabeth Critchley was last seen being dropped off near exit 13 of the Massachusetts Turnpike on July 25th. This was in 1981. So, four years after this first murder that you just talked about, Katie, that's a big stretch. Mm-hmm. She was with a friend and was planning to hitchhike home to Waterbury, Vermont. After two weeks of being missing, Mary's body was discovered roughly 80 miles from where she had been dropped off in Unity, New Hampshire. So to me, that kind of tells me, okay, her friend dropped her off, and this was in Massachusetts, and she ended up getting pretty far to get 80 miles, you know, away Mm -hmm. from Massachusetts. So... Of course, back then, it wasn't super uncommon to, if you were hitchhiking, catch a ride with one person to this point, get off, and then catch another ride with another person. So there's really no way of telling how many times, I hate to say it this way, but she changed hands, you know? She could have gone with four different people in that stretch, and then the fourth one being her killer, or she could have been picked up soon after her friend dropped her off, and then that could have been the person to kill her. It's really hard to tell, obviously, at this point. Her body was very badly decomposed, and ultimately her cause of death remains undetermined to this day. Yeah, and like you said, Liz, with her hitchhiking and with hitchhiking being such a common thing that happened in this time, Mary was leaving a dentist appointment, and Mm -hmm. her dentist actually drove her part of the way. Oh. And then dropped her off on the side of the road where her friend picked her up and dropped her the rest of the way and so on and so forth. Right. 
Like her dentist that's very dropped her off and was like, oh, you're going to be with your friend, though. That's fine. But, okay, hitchhike home and I'll see you for another appointment in six months right. or whatever. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. On May 30th, 1984, 17-year-old Bernice Courtmanch was last seen in Claremont, New Hampshire. She was still in high school and she was working as a nurse's aide at the Sullivan County Nursing Home. She had been last seen around 3.30 p.m. by her boyfriend's mom. She lived with them. Mm-hmm. Bernice had gotten a ride from a friend part of the way so she could hitchhike along Route 12 on her way to Newport to see her boyfriend. His name was Teddy Berry. He was over in Newport with his sister. Mm. He was expecting her. Mm -hmm. When she didn't show up, he knew something was wrong. Right. She was reported missing and her body was found two years later on April 19th, 1986. Two fishermen found her remains in the Sugar River in Newport, New Hampshire. Mm. She was found halfway in a stream, which really sped up the decomposition for her lower half. Right. Part of her skull and lower half of her body had been washed away. And I don't think it's ever been recovered. Yeah. A tattered jacket was found encased in the upper part of her torso. They were able to determine that her throat had been slit and she was stabbed multiple times in her chest. Mm -hmm. She also had a head injury. Yeah. This was really sad because she is the youngest known victim. Right. And she also made it to Newport. Right. Which is where she was headed. She was really close. She was there. And it's so horrible to think that she was almost at her destination. Her Mm -hmm. poor family and her poor boyfriend probably feel just really guilt and they shouldn't yeah you know but she was so close and of course she's traveling by hitchhiking so Mm -hmm. that's already we're seeing that again and again and we're only three victims in her boyfriend actually was considered a suspect for a while yeah i did read that as well which understandably because that's just how it goes you always have to go with the person closest to them that's always how it is and she was in Newport where he lived, so I could see that connection. But we know now, of course, it was not him. He was also young. She was mm-hmm. only 17. So how terrible. That is so sad. The next victim was Ellen Fried. She worked as a nurse at Valley Regional Hospital and lived in Claremont, New Hampshire, which similarly was where Bernice lived, very close by. Ellen worked late hours, and at 2 a.m. on July 20th of 1984, this is only two months after Bernice went missing, 27-year-old Ellen called her sister from a payphone outside of a store called Leo's Market. She had just left work. The phone call lasted roughly an hour, and it ended kind of abruptly after Ellen noted out loud to her sister on the phone that a car had come into the parking lot and that it was circling around. She noted that she thought it was strange, And she briefly left the phone call with her sister to check on the driver and make sure that the engine was working. And that's, she was maybe, she was concerned that the driver was having car trouble. Mm -hmm. And so she went to check it out real quick. She wasn't like, I'm scared. She was more like, oh, I think this person needs help. Not even really taking in the fact, to me, it sounds like that it was Mm 2am. You know, she was just having a calm normal conversation with her sister on the phone. And suddenly this car, oh, that's weird. Let me check it. She did come back to the phone call. And then it seemed like all of a sudden she ended it more quickly than she originally intended. Like they were having a long conversation and it was going to continue until this car came. 
18 months later, on September 19, 1985, Ellen's skeletal remains were found near Sugar River in Kellyville, New Hampshire, just miles away from where Bernice's body was found, and she wasn't found for another seven months. Due to the condition of her remains, not much could be told about her death, but it was determined that she had been stabbed. And I think, too, her being partially in the river, Bernice being partially in the river, both of those elements took away any chance to really tell if there was sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Especially with Bernice, because her entire lower half was missing. But it also sounds like this could be the, the way with Ellen as well. Mm-hmm. Just under a year after Ellen disappeared, 27-year-old Eva Marie Morse was last seen hitchhiking home from the factory where she worked near Claremont, New Hampshire, on Route 12. Yeah. This was on July 10th, 1985. Eva was a single mom to a 10-year-old daughter named Jenny, and she was a devoted mom who did absolutely everything for her daughter. Mm -hmm. Eva had a pretty rough childhood growing up, and she also didn't have a car, so she relied on hitchhiking or rides from friends to get where she needed to go. Prior to her disappearance, Eva seemed to be making changes to her appearance. She was dressing a lot more feminine, which wasn't really like her. Mm -hmm. She lost a lot of weight. She changed her hair. And she also was rumored to have just gotten out of a relationship with a former girlfriend, Carol. Mm -hmm. So when she disappeared, it wasn't taken seriously at first. Right. They were thinking, oh, she's getting over a breakup. You know, she's going to go out and be wild. All this other stuff. She's changing her appearance. She's making big changes. And no one really took into account that she is a very devoted mom Mm -hmm. to a 10-year-old. She's not just going to leave her 10-year-old at home and go to like a bar or a club or something. Right. It actually took 10 days for the police to give a fuck and realize that something was wrong. (laughs) Right. Because everyone was like, oh, I don't know where she went. That sucks. Yeah. But everybody at work was like, where is Eva? She's a single mom. She can't really afford to be just dicking around and not coming to work. Right. So it finally clicked for the police. Like, oh, wow. She is genuinely missing. Right. Her remains were found by loggers on April 25th, 1986. She actually was found just 500 feet from where Mary Elizabeth Critchley's body was found in 1981. Yeah. She was found by the same two men who found Mary's body. I did not know that. They were trauma. They were so traumatized. Oh. It was these two brothers. Oh. They were doing odd jobs. Right. Just things on the side. And they also worked as loggers. Yeah. So they were on that back desolate logging road pretty frequently right so they said that they noticed a smell and they thought maybe it was a deer but then they were thinking well five years ago we noticed a smell and thought it was a deer and we found a woman right so let's check it out and sure enough they found they found her wow yep medical examiners later determined that eva had sustained multiple stab wounds to her chest and neck with the wounds to her neck almost decapitating her Mm. We're seeing a theme for sure. Mm-hmm. Multiple stab wounds, cough, cough. Right. Region, cough, cough. Hitchhiking. Truly. It's starting to sound a little familiar. Linda Moore was 36 years old and living with her husband in Saxton's River, Vermont. And on April 15th of 1986, she was last seen in the front yard while home alone, roughly 2 p.m. And keep in mind, this is about 10 days before Eva was found. So Eva had been missing for almost a year. They found her body. But when they found her body, they were actively investigating this. Not an hour later, 
So this is still April 15th, 1986. She was out gardening. Her husband came home from work and he found her dead in their living room. She had been stabbed approximately 25 times, clearly displaying injuries caused by struggling with the killer. It's very obvious that she really tried to fight back. She, you know, she was in her home. She was scared. And she's the first one where they mentioned any kind of defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. But And it's so sad for her husband to find her. And so soon after she was killed. How terrifying. It was bad. And he, of course, was considered a suspect as well. I of mean, course. they put him through the ringer. Like, they would call him and say, anything you want to confess to us, anything you want to let us know. You're acting really weird. You're acting suspicious. Yeah. Oh. And then also, too, because it was three o'clock in the afternoon, her two children, a 12-year-old boy and an eight-year-old girl, oh. were about to get off the school bus. So police actually pulled over and apprehended multiple school buses to try and prevent these kids from coming home yeah but they kept pulling over the wrong ones Ugh. so at 3 30 her two kids get off the bus no and they're you know the house is like yellow tape yeah there's cop cars everywhere and the husband had to go out and he's covered in her blood yeah and he had to go out and be like hey Ugh. just uh don't go in the house yeah i didn't mm-hmm. know that part either wow mm-hmm. that's so awful this case is slightly different from the others because it's in broad daylight. It's right. in her home. She didn't hitchhike anywhere. Right. She wasn't dropped off and abducted and taken into the woods. She was found in her home. And it wasn't in... We had noticed, I mean, if you guys have been listening, that the people who have been killed so far, Claremont, right off the border mm-hmm. of the river. And now this is not so much. This was up in Saxon River, Vermont, Route 121. Yeah. So it's a little, it's still in the Connecticut River Valley region, but it's a little outside of where the other victims were. Yeah. So it seems like it was more of an opportunity. Yes. I think that's a good word. Multiple people actually saw the man that is believed to be the perpetrator. Really? He was described as being slightly stocky with dark hair. He had a blue knapsack. He was seen lingering around Linda's home watching her. Oh. So he was watching her garden. So I think that when she went inside, maybe to get a drink, maybe to wash her hands, he charged in, took her by surprise, overpowered her. Right. Which is how Kathy died Mm -hmm. was she was taken by surprise out on one of the trails in the wetlands. Right. Witnesses said that this person appeared to be between the ages of 20 and 25, oh, which is really disturbing because yeah, it's young. Very young. He also is described as having a round face that was clean-shaven with dark-rimmed glasses. Hmm. And based on these descriptions, they were able to form a composite sketch that came out a year later. Mm-hmm. I can't look at composite sketches. Oh, really? This is one that really makes me... Like, I put it up on the website. I was like, okay, put it up on the website, yeah. close out. Yeah. I can't, I can't oh, look at it. It's yeah. so creepy. On January 10th, 1987, 38-year-old Barbara Agnew was coming home from a ski trip with her friends and a guy she had been seeing up on Stratton Mountain in Stratton, Vermont. She was a nursing student, which it's kind of bizarre that multiple other victims were either nurses mm-hmm. or going to nursing school. Yep. So she was a nursing student. She had a young son named Neil. Classes were out for winter break. Her son was with his dad. So she decided to go up and have a nice ski weekend with her friends. She deserves it. She's busting her ass in school and at being a mom. She deserves it. Great. She was last seen headed to her home in Norwich. She left that night pretty late. Mm -hmm. There was a snowstorm. You know, her friends were thinking, 
why are you driving? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a million places you could stay. Just be safe. Later that evening, a snowplow driver found her green 1974 BMW at a rest stop near I-95 in Hartford, Vermont. Her door was cracked, and there was blood found on the steering wheel as well as in the backseat. Mm. In a nearby dumpster, there were several of Barbara's belongings that were covered in blood. Yeah. Her body was found several months later on March 28, 1987, under an apple tree on Advent Hill Road in Hartford, Vermont, in a wooded area. Mm. She was still wearing her ski clothes with the ski pass from Stratton Mountain hanging from the front of her jacket. Heartbreaking. She had been stabbed multiple times in the neck and chest. Several of her wounds were also described as defense wounds, with mm. one being described as disabling. Oh. So it was a very significant wound. Yeah. Investigators were trying to figure out why she stopped at the rest stop, because she was just 10 miles from home. Oh, yeah. But I was thinking, I was like, 10 miles? In the middle of the night, after driving for hours and hours in a blizzard, yeah. if I saw a rest stop, regardless of how far away it was, regardless of how, if I was exhausted, yeah. I had just been skiing all weekend with my friends, right. maybe I wanted to go in, warm up, go to the bathroom, sure. get a cup of coffee, get a snack, something. Right. So investigators were like, wow, this is so out of the ordinary that she was at this rest stop. And I was thinking, like, are you guys from New England? Because yeah. I don't think that it's that abnormal. No, I don't personally. Really with you on that one a lot of people believe in a theory that maybe she was lured there oh i don't know how that would have taken place yeah but yeah she ended up at that rest stop Hmm. just 10 miles from home and she was murdered there it's awful shitty very shitty it's a good word for it interestingly enough there was a survivor to the murderer that is dubbed the Connecticut River Valley Killer. And her tale of bravery may be the last story of any victim of the suspected serial killer. On August 6th, 1988, Jane Borowski was seven months pregnant with a little girl. She had been coming home later in the evening from a county fair that she had attended in Keene, New Hampshire. On her way home, she stopped to get a soda from a vending machine when she noticed a Jeep Wagoneer had parked next to her car. How oh how ominous is that? You're by yourself, you're super pregnant, long day at the fair, so much fun. You get out. I like to imagine it, and by like I mean horrified, like there's no other car in the parking lot. Yes. And suddenly there's a car next to hers. Before she knew it, a man had emerged from the car and was actually walking around the back of her car, then coming up to her and asking if she knew if the payphone was working. Which, to me, if that were me, I'd be like, why the fuck would I know? How would I? What? Why ask me? Go check it out for yourself. Right. You know? Like, You're a big boy. Yeah. Go, don't ask me. I'm seven months fucking pregnant and I wanted a drink and right. now I'm leaving. Yeah. Literally. Suddenly, the man grabbed her, accused her of beating up his girlfriend before he procured a knife and proceeded to stab her 27 times before dropping her and then quite literally leaving her to die miraculously jane survived she had been able to pull herself to her car get in start driving until she reached a friend's house got help and while she was there she saw the very same jeep wagoneer that the man who attacked her was in drive right by her friend's house how fucking scary 
You've made it to safety. You're clear. You're good. Okay, this awful thing just happened. I was stabbed. Ouch. Like, I managed to get away. I'm now safe. What the fuck was that? Was that the car? Was that the fucking car? Horrifying. My heart. As a result of the attack, Jane had suffered from a severed jugular vein. I don't know how she didn't die from that. Mm-hmm. I also don't know how she didn't die from having two collapsed lungs. She also had a kidney laceration, and she had tendons severed in her knees and in one of her thumbs. And she drove herself to her friend's house. That is adrenaline right there. There's no way I can even imagine that. No, and she said that she was trying to insert her key and turn it, and it wouldn't move because Mm. her right thumb was hanging off. Ugh. So how she managed to start the car, drive the car, get to her friend's house. Not die. Bleeding profusely, 27 stab wounds. Yeah. And she said that she was just thinking the whole time, like, as she was being stabbed, I have to protect my baby. Yeah. And she did. The baby lived. She later was diagnosed with a mild form of cerebral palsy, but otherwise was healthy and you know, just like Jane survived the ordeal, which even just reading that gives me chills because that is not usually the case. Mm-hmm. So what a blessing coming from such a ser- terrible tragedy. After Jane's vicious attack, in which she did supply the police with a detailed composite sketch and a partial license plate, the murder is completely stopped. So that's why I think maybe she's the reason that the Connecticut River Valley killer stopped absolutely because he left her for dead yep big mistake bucko because he drove back and was like oh shit Mm -hmm. there she is she drove two miles somehow and jane even said she said you know i was in shock i i just knew i had to live right i knew i had to get to my friend's house i just knew i had to get there she said she had no idea how fast she was driving right but she knew it was really fast because Mm -hmm. before she knew it the car in front of her was the car of her attacker. Oh, my God. And she said, it was really dirty. You know, blood is gushing out of me. I'm in shock. I'm in pain, adrenaline. And she said that she was looking and she goes, holy shit, that's the vehicle. Right. And that's how she was able to tell police it was a Jeep Wagoneer with New Hampshire plates. Mm -hmm. It appeared to be anywhere from the year... 1975 to 1985 Mm -hmm. the first three characters of the license plate she was able to see were 622 she actually went to the police after this and you know she's in the hospital Mm -hmm. she is struggling with lacerations on her throat to be able to talk and tell police this information and two collapsed lungs and her unborn child is somehow miraculously still kicking right that's crazy yeah She went back to the police and she said, hey, I heard about this thing, like hypnosis, Mm. really helps victims recall more information. Can you do that to me so I can help you get this guy? Yeah. So she willingly underwent hypnosis, relived her entire attack, and she was telling the police, I was on the ground, I got up and I ran away, and I was so excited, I thought I was going to live, and he grabbed me again and got me on the ground and stabbed me here, here, and here, Mm -hmm. and I somehow pulled myself up. Her windshield was cracked, by the way, because as he pulled her out, her right foot went through the windshield. Oh, Jesus. So not only is she driving with 27 stab wounds, life-threatening wounds her right hand is not working right she's seven months pregnant that already in itself is not easy to move around right with right her view is obstructed because her windshield shattered right 
she said she decided to go to the fair last minute. Mm. She really didn't feel like anybody was following her. She feels like it's just a, a random attack. Like, she went to the convenience store. It was closed. Right. There was a vending machine. Yeah. Thank God, because she was parched. Like, it's right. summer. She's very pregnant again. Right. right. So she was like, all right, awesome. I have my drink. I think it was a Pepsi or something. She Back to her car. I'm going to drive away. Everything's great. And she just said, you know, I feel like it was an opportunistic attack. I think so. Jane appears on the podcast called Invisible Tears, where she talks about her survival as well as the trauma and PTSD she was left to endure. Mm. That podcast is available wherever you like to listen. Read the book. (laughs) Listen to this podcast. We highly recommend. Yeah. So scary. She's a bad bitch. Yeah, she is. Truly a bad bitch. Yeah. Damn. So when authorities were piecing together all of these women that were stabbed multiple times, very similar MO, very Mm -hmm. similar region, there were a couple other victims that they were questioning. Right. Is this the work of the Connecticut River Valley killer? Right. The first was 15-year-old Joanne Denham. She was a sophomore in high school, and she was last seen walking to the bus stop on her way to school in June of 1968. She never made it to the bus. Mm -hmm. The bus pulled up at the bus stop at 7.35 in the morning. Joanne was not there. Mm. Her body was found in the woods in Unity, New Hampshire, one day later by a man walking his dog. And he he had a boxer. So the boxer just pulled him right to her. Yeah. Her case was not originally considered to be part of these murders. Right. But Eva Morse's body was found just a couple hundred yards away from where Joanne's body was found 18 years prior. So either that's a really coincidental coincidence mm-hmm. or they're related. Right. 13-year-old Sherry Anastasia vanished in Springfield, Vermont on August 28, 1979. Springfield is just 12 miles south of Claremont. Mm. Sherry and her brother lived with their dad, and he was a truck driver who spent long hours out on the road. Police said they were actually used to seeing Sherry out late because that's just what she did. Yeah. You know, her dad's not home. Her brother's in bed safe. She was kind of a mother figure to her brother just because she basically had to raise him. But once he was all settled, she would just go out and do whatever she wanted because there was no authority figure for her. Right. She was last seen late that night on August 28th, but it was definitely a shock when she never returned home. Right. She was last seen getting into a dark green Pontiac Firebird, and her body was found three months later by a rest stop. And it was so badly stabbed, decomposed, that she could only be identified by her dental records. Yeah. We actually talked about Sherry in episode 10 about Gary Lee Schaefer, who was up in Vermont. And Gary actually admitted to killing a bunch of different women. One of them survived miraculously, thank God. Yeah. But he was just terrorizing that area. And he admitted to every detail of every one of his victims. Yeah. And they asked him about Sherry. And he was like, who? Yeah. I don't know who you're talking about. Right. So people think that maybe... Sherry was one of Gary's victims that he didn't admit to. Right. I know we talked about her in that episode, Mm -hmm. but all of Gary's other victims were beaten. They had severe blunt force trauma. Sherry was stabbed. Yeah. So her death honestly fits more with the Connecticut River Valley killer's MO. Right. And this would also make her the youngest victim. Right. 
And I mean, I think it's a good point because why would he suddenly not take account of his actions? Why would this be different? Definitely. So I think I hate that man. And you guys should definitely check out that episode. But I think he's telling the truth as far as Sherry Anastasia goes. For sure. Because it's just, it's so different. And also, remember, guys, Gary Lee Schaefer, episode 10, we were in our youth back then. So take it with a grain of salt on the production quality, (laughs) but the information is still good. Yeah, and you guys should look into that, too. They mention him pretty thoroughly in the book as well, Mm -hmm. because there is such a correlation between, you know, victims that they were thinking, oh, shit, is this our guy? Is this Gary? You know, whose victim belongs to who? Mm -hmm. And then they finally apprehended Gary. It was crazy. I mean, he was a piece of shit. Yeah, he 100%. He was. Definitely check that out, guys. Yeah. Give it a little love. And maybe it'll make some sense with what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Besides Jane Borowski's account of the man who attacked her, and, you know, she gave, like, a decent composite sketch, there was literally no witness to any of the crimes that had happened that would lead anyone to knowing who the Connecticut River Valley killer was. And there was also almost no physical evidence as well, which is jarring. The main link between the murders and Jane's attempted murder, of course, was the stabbing, which clearly was an MO for the killer, as well as the location. Most of them were hitchhiking. Some would even consider the whole nursing thing as a factor, Mm -hmm. which is bizarre, but I'm wondering if it's just a coincidence. I think so. Still kind of weird, though. So the New Hampshire State Police actually sought out the help of a man named John Philpin, who was a criminal psychologist, and they wanted to use him to kind of create a profile for the killer that they had at hand, which was very new back then. This is very like criminal minds, behavioral analysis unit kind of stuff, way back in its infancy. The hope with this was to get so specific in the type of man that this was, and then weed him out by describing someone else completely and kind of trick him into thinking they had another lead or a different kind of heading in a different direction. Philpin's profile of the killer ultimately concluded as such. The man most likely did a lot of driving and was able to choose dump sites slash hunting grounds that were considered, quote, low risk in his eyes. So Philpin speculated that instead of choosing a victim ahead of time and stalking them and doing his research he instead picked his murder sites ahead of time or his dumping grounds ahead of time and brought those victims that he maybe had opportunities to kill to those sites philpin also guesses that the killer needs to feel as though he owns the victims which we've seen a lot in murder cases Mm -hmm. and he also likes to feel that he can do whatever he wants with them He is also most likely considered a loner who prefers to spend time with his own thoughts and sick, twisted fantasies rather than actually other people. And most notably, Philpin thinks, is that this man absolutely hates women for whatever reason. His mom was not there. His grandma abused him. His first girlfriend died in a car. Something stupid that made this man hate, hate women. There are several suspects in this case, and two of the three most prominent ones seem most likely. In October of 1977, 46-year-old Gary Westover was dying. Oh, boo. He was in Grafton, New Hampshire. He was a paraplegic who was wheelchair-bound. He had told his uncle, who was a retired sheriff's deputy, 
that he had something he needed to tell him. Mm. Gary said that he was picked up by three friends for, quote, a night of partying in 1987. The friends put him and his wheelchair into their van and went to Vermont, where they abducted, murdered, and dumped Barbara Agnew off of a back road. Hmm. This information was shared with police, but the uncle felt as though they were not interested in the information. They totally wrote it off. They were probably thinking, well, this guy is a paraplegic in a wheelchair. Like, mm. was he along for the ride? How much of an involvement could he have possibly had? Right. If it's the night of a snowstorm, mm-hmm. he can't be cruising around in feet of snow, right. stabbing this woman and pulling her out of a car. You know, like, there's no... But I guess this guy felt very guilty. He felt like he had involvement. And that, too, is very strange to me because that would set apart her murder from the others when the M.O. was so clearly, you know, the timeline, the area, how she died, multiple stab wounds, how her body was found. It just, yeah, it's interesting. Very. And it sucks, too, to be that uncle Mm -hmm. because... You know, you have your nephew who you're taking care of. He's dying, and he suddenly tells you that he thinks he's going to hell. And he has something to tell you. What? Gary, calm, take your morphine. It's okay. <laughs> you know, like, that's so, that's awful. And, you know, Gary apparently provided his uncle with the names of the friends he went with, but those names have never been released. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they were ever looked into. Mm-hmm. Gary Westover did die in 1998, and his uncle, who was what we think the sole listener to this confession, died in 2006. So there's that. Always when there's a deathbed confession, I just get so stressed. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. And as a hospice nurse, that's mm-hmm. one of my fears is I'm going to go tend to a patient and they'll yeah. be like, come here. I got to get this off my chest before I meet the Lord or something oh, crazy. God. Like, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sure thing. (laughs) So creepy. The next potential killer is a man named Delbert Tallman. His suspicion all started with the May 1984 murder of 16-year-old Heidi Martin, who was killed while she was out jogging in Heartland, Vermont. Her body was found in a swamp behind an elementary school. She had been brutally raped and also stabbed. Some believe that she is also a victim of the Connecticut River Valley killer, despite her connection to this suspect. And I could believe that because, I mean, she was jogging, so she was alone. She was stabbed. One of them did have sexual assault indications. A few of them you couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Delbert, who was 21 years old at this time, actually came forward and confessed to Heidi's murder. And he was actually even tried for it. But later he recanted his confession and he actually ended up being acquitted for this, which is very bizarre. Delbert was known to have lived in several towns that were considered the epicenter of where the Connecticut River Valley murder was happening, and he was known to have a history of lewd acts. Delbert did spend some time in jail for failure to comply with the sex offender registration requirements, but he got out of jail in 2010, and that's all we really know about him. He's not super likely to me, but neither is Gary so much. Right. I do think it's interesting that Delbert was 21 at this time when Linda's body was found and multiple witnesses came forward and said, yeah, he looked between the ages of 20 and 25, yada, yada. He does fit that age range. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering if he confessed to this murder 
as a way of like somebody please get me to stop oh i can't stop myself i'm gonna confess i'm gonna go to jail everything will be great okay but then i wonder if he just like okay you're acquitted toodaloo right he just went on killing people right hmm that's a good thought the last and honestly most likely suspect for in my opinion is a man named michael nicolau Nicolau worked as a helicopter pilot for the Army in the Vietnam War, and he had actually earned several medals while serving the country. However, due to an incident with several other members of his platoon, he was charged with murder and attempted murder. These charges were dropped eventually. However, thank God, he was disciplined, okay? He was dishonorably discharged from the Army. Who cares about the whole murder thing? What? Unimportant now. He's served his country. Then, Nicolau met his wife, Michelle Ashley, and soon after they had two children, and they lived in Holyoke, Massachusetts. The marriage was unpleasant, and eventually, in 1988, Michelle decided to leave her husband, and she took the kids. Nicolau didn't like this, so he harassed her, and Michelle actually ended up going back to him. In December of 1988, several weeks had passed since Michelle's family had heard from her, and um, Michelle has never been seen again. Interesting. Keep that in your pocket, guys. And this, of course, is 1988. That's around when the killing stopped. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. In 2001, over 13 years since her disappearance, Michelle's family sought out to get a PI to look into Nicolau, look into Michelle, and to look into their two kids, who had all been missing to the family since 1988. So not only did Michelle go missing, but the two kids, they lost contact with them as well. Nicolau was found, and he claimed that Michelle had run off with a drug dealer, of course, saying that she was a slut and she abandoned their children. Okay, all right, buddy. I've We've heard this before. Mm-hmm. They blame it and they say, no, no, she went, she was a drug user. Guys, I didn't, go find her, look in the slums or something, right. you know? crazy. By 2005, Nicolau was living in Georgia with a third wife, a woman named Eileen. Their marriage, surprise, was toxic. What? And in December of 2005, Eileen had had enough after her husband had broke her shoulder. That's how bad the abuse was getting. He broke her shoulder. So she fled to her sister's house in Florida with her daughter, who was from a previous relationship. Now, just after Christmas of 2005, Nicolau located Eileen at her sister's house. He was confronted by police and produced a, quote, long-barreled weapon. He then barricaded himself inside the home. Several gunshots were heard. Police eventually entered, and they found that Nicolau had killed Eileen, her daughter that wasn't his, and then he killed himself. Some believe that Nicolau was responsible for at least some of the Connecticut River Valley murders due to the fact that his missing wife, Michelle, was a nurse— and that he lived in the area during some of the murders. He also drove a Jeep Wagoneer at the time of the murders, which is what Jane saw when she was attacked at the rest stop. Yep. Nicolau's son, Nick, was found by the PI who had, you know, told the heartbreaking tale. He was alive. He was well. And... Then Nick told the story of how terribly he was treated by his father, how they were always moving. And in a way, Nick described that whole moving a lot as if they were running from something. To this day, no one has been charged with any of the murders of the seven women or the attack on Jane Borowski. And that 
is the Connecticut River Valley Killer. In a nutshell. Absolutely crazy case. Batshit crazy. And honestly, I think it's one of the most prolific serial killers in the area. I would agree with you, for sure. And it's very obvious that at least some of these murders are all con- like are connected, you know? Maybe some were done by a different person, some by another, but I feel mm-hmm. like they're all connected in a way that there was more than one victim per whoever was killing. So maybe Nicolau was one of the killers. Maybe he he did. I don't know if he killed all of them, but I think he probably didn't just kill one if he had, you know? It's crazy stuff. For sure. And you could argue that, okay, there's an outlier here. You know, maybe Sherry Anastasia was a result of Gary Lee Schaefer and he's not being honest. Right. Maybe the little 15-year-old, sweet little 15-year-old that was missing from her bus stop. Right. Maybe that was an outlier because it happened so much earlier than the other killings. Right. They're related. I think Okay, even if some of them are outliers, I think the majority are related to one another. Right. You don't just have seven or eight different people running around with the same MO. Right. Like they're all (laughs) operating with the same, I have to stab her at least 20 times in the (laughs) neck and chest, maybe sexual assault. Yeah. Bring her to a wooded area that only I know and me and like a random logger will come across years later. Like, let's be real. Yeah. I think it's all connected in. The fact that none of it is solved is very disheartening. It's so shitty because these happened so long ago. Yeah. And I think you make a good point. You know, it's not likely that there are seven or eight different killers in Vermont, New Hampshire areas running around with the same MO. It just doesn't make sense. No, during the same time period? Come on. Yeah, it doesn't check out. Guys, this is one of those cases that there is so much room for speculation. There is so much. And we want to hear what you think. So tell us if you think any of those suspects sound good. Do you think any of those victims sound like outliers? Tell us literally any thoughts you have on this case. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeAny. Oh, lowercase. Or you can send us an email full of your thoughts on this case or other cases. Maybe even go back and revisit Gary Lee Schaefer, episode 10. And you can send us an email at TrueCrimeAny at gmail.com. We also have a website, TrueCrimeNE.com. You could go to our contact page. Use our handy-dandy submission tool. You can leave your name if you so choose. Be anonymous, of course. We would love to hear your thoughts on this case. Maybe episode 10, if you're feeling a little throwback moment. (laughs) Nostalgia. You could look on our website, look at other cases that we have done. And of course, because this case came highly suggested, if you have any suggestions of your own based in New England, please, we would love to hear from you. Absolutely. And guys, again, stay tuned. In two days, we'll have the two-year anniversary special dropping for you guys. Special. It's on a Saturday. How fun. And we're just so excited. And we're so appreciative. These past two years have been a dream. I just have had so much fun with this, it's you know, so like, and just to have you guys be along for the ride with us and listen to how we've grown, listen to the progress we've made, yeah. listen to us share some statistics and such on that special episode, yeah. just to have you guys here, just to have you guys listening for two whole years. Two years. Thank you guys so much. It's unbelievable. And with that, We'll see you at the anniversary special, Saturday. Woo! Bye!